That is that the very end of my notes, I always try to take time to deal with questions regarding the subject that uh, I've taught. And so we're going to do that today as well. 1 Peter chapter 3, this is the same verse that we read when we did the question and answer portion on the Godhead. And we're going to go back and review this verse again, talk about it just a little bit before we get started this morning uh, on the subject at hand. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse number 15, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that lieth in you or that is in you, with meekness and fear. Be ready. Everyone say, be ready. Everyone say, always. Now notice what he says. Be ready always. That is, at all times. Any time that it comes up, you should be ready. You should be prepared. Be ready always. To do what? To give an answer to Every man that asketh, be ready to give an answer to every man that asketh. I am of the firm conviction that if what we are teaching is truth, then there is an answer to every question, every sincere question. Uh, there's an answer. There's an answer in the scripture. In fact, I, I uh, made mention last week that it amazes me when I sit and think about how that God, it, it appears to me, foresaw the false doctrine that would spread through this world and put enough scripture in place to answer every false doctrine that arises now, the Bible is not written as a cure for false doctrine. It's written as a presentation of true doctrine. And yet, God knew. He knew. Um, for instance, I, I believe wholeheartedly that God foresaw the false doctrine of the Trinity. God knew that was coming. In fact... It is my belief, uh, and those of you that were here when I taught uh, from the book of Matthew chapter 13, it's been a number of years ago now, but uh, those that were here when I taught from Matthew 13 may remember um, that I believe that one of the parables Jesus gave even alludes to the false doctrine of the Trinity, and... and uh, uh, talks about how it would fill all the earth. And uh, if you weren't here, that may challenge you to go home and read Matthew 13 and see if you can find it. Uh, but anyhow, I believe the Lord foresaw it. I believe he knew full well, and he gave us enough direct scriptural refutation that we could put to rest any false doctrine if our hearts are hungry and our minds are open. Praise God. And uh, I believe that 
that the Lord knew that it was going to be common practice for people, first of all, to teach that baptism was not necessary, and secondly, to teach that when it's done, it should be done using the triune formula, saying, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. I believe the Lord knew that was coming. I don't think anything surprises God. And so he gave us enough scripture to refute it. Right. He really did. And, uh, and so I, I want, and I've said this over the last several weeks, that I want this church to be so well equipped in your knowledge of these basic truths that anyone that asks you a question, you can answer them. Praise God. And uh, I want you, I want you to not just hear me today, but I want you to grasp the things that I'm telling you. And then when the time comes that I distribute my notes to you, I want you to take those notes and study them. In fact, I have said, uh, you know, you never... You never know when I might just call for a debate and just see if you all can answer the questions I throw at you. And uh, you need to be ready to do that. You need to be ready to do that. Now, not being ready is not an excuse for not witnessing. But I do want to tell you that nothing makes our message look weaker than for those who claim to believe it to not be able to defend it. When people ask you a question and your answer is, well, I don't know. That's a valid answer when it's true. But I'm just telling you, it weakens our position in the minds of those who ask. And so we should be prepared. We should be ready. And so we're going to, we're going to, deal with that today. We're going to be going through some of the questions that I receive and have been asked through the years and then dealing with them from a scriptural standpoint. Amen. Why don't we put our Bibles down? Let's lift our hands, lift our voices, and let's ask the Lord to help us today. Can we do that, everybody? Let's talk to the Lord together. Jesus. Praise you now in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name. Let's worship the Lord one more time before we're seated, everybody. Let's worship the Lord together. Can we do that? Let's lift our hands. Come on, let's talk to the Lord. Let's praise him a little bit here today. Jesus, we worship you. Jesus, we glorify you. Jesus, we magnify you. Hallelujah. 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 Praise God. Praise God. Amen. God bless you. You may be seated. I, uh, I don't want to spend a lot of time in review, um, 
but I do want to try to hit just a few highlights of the things that we have covered over the last several weeks. And I would encourage anyone, um, whether you are here in this service or you listen online, uh, listen to the recording later, I would encourage you to get a copy of all of the lessons on this subject and uh, go back through and study it. In fact, I encourage folks that you really ought to take notes while listening to a recording because you can stop the recording and continue your notes and you don't miss anything. And uh, you, you get a much more accurate set of notes by doing that. But let me do a brief review this morning. We've talked about how that the Apostle Paul, I believe, is uh, as the writer of Hebrews, uh, whoever the writer was, the author of Hebrews listed the doctrine of baptism in Hebrews chapter 6 as part of the foundation of the true church. We've talked about how important that foundation is, and if the foundation is not what it needs to be, then the building is not going to stand. Amen. And part of our foundation is this doctrine of baptism. It's not one of those subjects that's just kind of like a spare tire. It's nice to have it, uh, you know, should you ever need it, but you can make the trip without it. Uh, I'm telling you, baptism is not that way. Baptism, baptism is not that way at all. Uh, baptism is part of the transmission. Amen. You're not going anywhere without it. Uh, you're not going to make any progress without it. And, and it's, it's a part of what the church is built upon. Amen. We have, we've discussed the fact that, that uh, Ephesians 4 and 5 says there is only one baptism. We're, we're, not, we're not looking at one of many ideas, one of many opinions, but really opinions matter nothing at all unless it's God's opinion. And our obligation is to hold to God's opinion. In fact, Romans chapter 3 and verse 4 tells us that we must let God be true and every man a liar. And so it's not about who does it. It's not about how many do it. It's about what does the word of God say. And if the word of God says it, it doesn't matter. If every church on earth does it differently, it doesn't make it right. The word of God is what is right. It is the only source of absolute truth. The problem is we've got traditions that we've hung on to, and we've allowed those traditions in many cases to override the truth as set forth in the scripture. One of the truths that we declared over the last several weeks was the fact that you must be baptized in order to be saved. We looked at the commands of Jesus himself, and Jesus made it very, very clear that without water baptism, you will not end into the kingdom of God. I don't care how many crusades a man's preached. I don't care how many thousands have been in that crusade. I don't care how many wonderful sermons he's preached or how many people feel like they've been blessed by his message. If he's not been baptized according to Jesus, he's not going to enter the kingdom of God. 
Hallelujah. Now, we talked about not only did Jesus state this, but the apostle Peter also uh, talked about it. He said, baptism doth also now save us. That's pretty clear if you ask me. When asked, men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter included baptism in a part of what needs to be done. So we talked about all of that. We spent some time talking about sprinkling versus immersion and showed you the fallacy of, of even considering that being sprinkled is really a form of baptism. It is, sprinkling is, is a word that is contradictory to the word baptize. It's contradictory. You know, it's, 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 um, it's almost like saying I'm eating on my fast. You, you can't do both. It's not possible to do both. If you're eating, you're not fasting. If you're fasting, you're not eating. Right? But when somebody says I got baptized by being sprinkled, you can't do both. Because the word baptize means to immerse. So to say that is to say I got immersed by being sprinkled. It's not possible. It's not possible. Amen. And so we talked about that. We spent time dealing with that. We showed you from the scripture that the biblical example is that people were fully immersed, fully submerged. We talked about history and how history pointed out it took hundreds of years after the death of Christ before anybody ever claimed to baptize someone through the process of sprinkling simply didn't happen in the Bible at all and didn't happen in the early church. Then we spent some time talking about the proper method, the proper formula for baptism. And we started, of course, with Matthew 28, 19, where people claim that Jesus instructed us to say in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. The problem is that's not what Jesus instructed us to do. He did not say, say these words. He said, baptize them in the name. And Father's not a name. Son's not a name. Holy Ghost is not a name. The only way we can obey Matthew 28, 19 is to baptize in the name of the Father. We talked about this. I think it was in last week's lesson, John 5 and 43. Jesus said, I came in my Father's name. So the name he came in is the Father's name. That name is Jesus. Matthew 121, the name of the Son is Jesus. She shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus. John 14, 26 says that the Holy Ghost would come in Jesus' name. The name of the Holy Ghost is Jesus. Ephesians 3.15 says that the whole family in heaven and earth bears that name. Amen. Acts 4 and 12 says, neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. So there is no other name but the name of Jesus. Amen. We talked about the biblical principles of interpretation, how you've got to have two or three witnesses before you can build a doctrine on anything. And there are no other witnesses that use the titles Father, Son, and Holy Ghost for baptism. 
And as I pointed out, when I say that, people say, well, are you saying Matthew 28, 19 is wrong? My answer is no. Matthew 28, 19 is not wrong. The way you're interpreting Matthew 28, 19 is wrong. Because if you're interpreting it properly, you should have at least one more witness to show that's the right interpretation. But you have none. There are none. Zero. They don't exist. But I tell you that what Matthew 28, 19 means is to baptize in the name, which is Jesus. And then I went through a list of not one, not two, not three, but seven witnesses that prove that baptism should always take place in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Seven being God's number of completion or perfection. Amen. And I gave you seven witnesses where there are no witnesses for using the triune formula. We have seven witnesses for using the name of Jesus. Amen. I trust that we forever settled that issue in that lesson. We also, before we concluded, went through a number of references, both historical and uh, both religious and secular, uh, historical references, both religious and secular, that proved that baptism was always done in the name of Jesus until hundreds of years after the death of the apostles. Man changed the formula. Man changed it. I'm not interested in following man's way. I want to follow God's way. Can I get some help here this morning? Amen. 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 All right, so now let's look at our text. Let's put 1 Peter 3.15 back up on the wall. Let's look at this verse, and let's talk about it for a moment before I get into the actual questions themselves. Read for me 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer. All right, now, now be ready. Everyone say, be ready. Be ready. Everyone say, always. Always. Everyone say, to give an answer. To give an answer. All right, read. To every man. Everyone say to every man. To every man. All right, read. That asketh you a reason of the hope that is in, that is in you with meekness and fear. So sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh. Amen. This is an apostolic mandate. This is a command. Church, I, 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 don't, I don't think I can stress it strongly enough. The things that are written in the Bible are written for a reason. They're not there to be a menu where we pick and choose what we'd like to order today. That's not what the Bible is. This is not a list of options. Do you understand? Jesus said, if you love me, what? Keep my commandments. He said, if you really love me, you're going to do what I tell you to do. Now, he said that the way we believe on him is through the word of his apostles. So I'm telling you that whatever the apostles commanded in the scripture, we are obligated to obey. Yes. Amen. These things are not a choice. I'm telling you, and, and I, 
I, I say this in Africa. I, I, I say it here. I'm telling you, church, one of the worst heresies to ever be introduced into Christianity is the idea of once saved, always saved. That is such a false doctrine. It is such a lie. And, and I'm telling you, it promotes absolute deception because people think they can do whatever they want to do and they're still going to be saved. And I'm telling you, we've got one God apostolics who would never admit they believe that, but they live their lives as though they believe that. Because they see what the scripture says, but they really don't feel like they have to do it. Now, now church, please, God would put nothing in this book that's impossible for us to do. Thank you for saying right. I'd like to hear some more of you say that's right, because it is right. God wouldn't put it in the Bible and tell us to do it if we couldn't do it. It's one of the problems with this whole uh, argument that I hear everywhere. Well, what about people where they don't have water? What about people that are dying? What about people in prison? All of those questions I'm telling you are meaningless. Because what you're saying is that even though God commanded it, there are some who cannot keep God's commandments. That means God wasn't smart enough to think of every situation that might arise. Now, I don't know about the God you're serving, but the one I'm serving has thought out everything. There is no situation presented to man where a person cannot obey what God has told them to do. If he tells you to cross the Jordan and it's flooded in its banks... He'll make a way for you to do it. Amen. Amen. Right? Amen. God doesn't command things that we can't do. Right. I hope you're getting this this morning. So if God says, thou shalt not lie, then he's thought of every situation where you might think you need to lie. And he's already weighed all that out. And he's given us a command not to lie. So we can't sit back and justify, well, this lie will be okay. Hallelujah. When God says, thou shalt not steal. He means that. Thou shalt not covet. He means that. Now, he didn't say it. It would always be easy for us to do it. But I'm telling you, it will always be possible. Do you understand the difference? And here's, here's where in, in 2018, we run into problems. Because, let me be very careful so I don't come across as some old fuddy-duddy here. Let me tell you, we live in a generation 
where we want everything to be as easy as possible. We want the least resistance. We want the least amount of difficulty. We want the least amount of challenge. We really do. It's built into us. And we don't want to have to pay a price for something. We want to do it as easy as we can. And God didn't promise that keeping his commandments would always be easy. I'm just telling you they will always be possible. Sometimes it's going to take quite an effort on our part. I, I, I don't want to get too sidetracked here. But if I do, I do. And I'm about to. So here we go. But while we were gone, I, I mentioned to the church um, that when I got ready to book my tickets, uh, it would save us $250 per person, which you don't have to be very good at math to figure out that's $500 for both my wife and me if we would wait and fly home on Friday. And so I opted to save $500. Uh, I anybody else would do the same thing so that gave us an extra day and I was within three hours uh, where my sister-in-law lives we were within three hours of the Gettysburg battlefield and so we opted to take that extra day and drive down to Gettysburg and to to stand on that battlefield and to view that cemetery and uh uh, we toured the museums and I had quite the refresher course in that unbelievable battle that took place where tens of thousands of men gave their lives for what they believed in. Whether north or south, they were fighting for what they believed in. And, and they were willing to put their lives on the line. Now I'm telling you when, you, when you stand there and, and you look at and, and you read and you hear what it cost them to do what they did, the unbelievable agony and anguish. Some of them, some of them, 17, 18 years old. Some of them fighting against their own relatives and friends. And you you know that there was just something in them that they weren't looking for the easy way out. In fact, I read the comments that so many of them made and, and some of them said, people ask me, aren't you afraid of death? And, and, and this man said, anybody that's not afraid of death is a lunatic. He said, it's not a matter of not uh, being afraid of death. 
It's just a matter of fighting for what you believe in. He said, you stand up in the midst of that fear and you do it anyhow. The mindset of those tens of thousands who fought and suffered and died was never, let's do this the easy way. Amen. Oh, now there were those who were writing, you know, the, the media, the ones who, who didn't have to put uh, the rifle in their arms and the knapsack on their back. They could sit in their comfortable offices and write, we don't need all this uh, wasted bloodshed and, and uh, you know, why... Why can't we all just get along? I mean, they didn't say that back then, but it was the same idea. And, and, and I'm telling you, it's easy for them to say it. But we were a nation that was in the midst of being divided. And in fact, was divided at that point. I mean, you do understand that, that those southern states seceded and formed their own country. And what was the United States of America became two separate countries. And they fought because they believed in something. And they weren't looking for an easy way out. And they weren't trying to figure what's going to be the easiest way for us to do this. It was a matter of what's it going to take for us to win. Amen. Amen. Somehow the church of the living God has got to reach a place that we shake off this attitude of how's it going to be easy for us and instead adopt an attitude of what's it going to take for us to win? What's it going to take to win? How many, how many sleepless hours? How many days of hunger? How much pain and suffering? What will it take for us to win this war? Now, I'm going to tell you, there's enough going on in my mind right now. I, I, uh, somewhere down the road, you can just count on, there's a sermon. I told my wife as we walked through the Civil War Museum, I said, there's a sermon in here. Uh... There's a sermon in here. There's, there's a number of factors that led to the ultimate victory of the northern army. And they're interesting factors. Uh, the north almost, almost lost the Battle of Gettysburg. And, and, and I don't want to give away too much, but but Gettysburg was a crucial battle in the Civil War because it was the furthest north that the armies under General Lee 
made it. And they were doing their best to take as much northern territory as they could. And Gettysburg was their first time into the state of Pennsylvania. And they were pressing further northward. And had they taken Gettysburg, uh, they would have had a stronghold in the north and would have continued northward and may very well have won the war had they won in Gettysburg. But there were a number of things that happened that turned the tide of that battle because they came very close to winning that battle. Uh, So I'll just let you chew on it a while and... One of these nights, I'll preach about it. But we we need to understand, church, to get back to what I'm talking about, what we're reading in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15 is not a suggestion. It's not an option. It's not a menu item that we can just read over and ignore. This is a command, a divinely inspired command given by the Apostle Peter. Amen. Now, we as apostolics, we love the fact, you know, Peter had the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Peter's the one who said to be baptized in Jesus' name. We love that. But Peter also said, be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks you a reason of the hope that lieth in you. The same Peter that told us to be baptized in Jesus' name told us to be ready to answer every question. So we don't pick and choose. Well, I got baptized in Jesus' name, but I'm not ready to answer the questions. If you're not ready, you need to fix that. You need to work on that. I'm waiting for the rest of you to get on board. If you're not ready to answer questions, you need to fix that. Hallelujah. You need to be spending some time in study and prayer and preparation so that anybody that asks you about it, you've got an answer. Hallelujah. Amen. This term, be ready always, means that first of all, we should be able to do it. And secondly, we should be willing to do it. So we've got to be both willing and able. And so there is a responsibility on our shoulders to do something about fulfilling this command. How are we going to do that? 2 Timothy 2.15. But study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed. Rightly dividing the word of truth. Study. Everyone say study. Everyone say study. Study to show thyself approved unto God. How many of you want God's approval in your life? Do you want God's approval in your life? I'm going to tell you, we're not going to get his approval if we don't study. Study. It's another mandate. It's another requirement given to us by an apostle who's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. Study to show yourself approved unto God. A workman that does not need to be ashamed because you're able to rightly divide the word of truth. Amen. Now, the word, the word, answer in first peter 3 15 he said be ready always to give an answer it is from the greek word uh, from which we get our english word apology now 
Now, we, we've kind of changed the meaning of an apology. Uh, an apology to us today means to say we're sorry for something. But, but the word in the original uh, really means to stand in defense of something. That's why sometimes walking through the Christian bookstore, you'll see they have a section on apologetics. That doesn't mean people who are saying we're sorry we believe this. That means they're defending what they believe. They're standing in defense of their doctrine. And in fact, this word is translated defense in a number of scriptures in the New Testament. Exact same Greek word, but they translated it as defense. And so when Peter said, be ready uh, always to give an answer, he was saying, be ready always to defend against any question that you're asked. Always be prepared. Always have the proper defense. Jude said it this way. Jude chapter 1 verse 3. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort ye that you should earnestly that contend, you should earnestly contend, contend for the faith for the faith once delivered unto the saints. Uh, the common English version says, "I must write and ask you to defend the faith." I have to ask this of you. Please defend what you believe. The International Standard Version says, I found it necessary to write to you and urge you to continue your vigorous defense of the faith. I'm going to tell you something, saints of God. If there ever was a time that we need to be prepared to defend this message, it's the day we're living in. We are watching even men who once preached this message turn their back on it and preach against it. But we as saints of God had better be well grounded, well versed. We better have something in us that allows us to stand in defense of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. Praise God. Amen. And so that's what I'm going to try to do. Today's lesson and and if we don't get finished, um, then we'll carry it on for another week. But I think, I think maybe, maybe, maybe I can get through these questions today. We'll see. I've only got about 40 minutes to do it in. But uh, if you'll ride with me, um, then I think we can get it done. Amen. So let's talk about, let's talk about some of these things and some of them I've dealt with as I've taught the lesson, but we're going to go back and just deal with them again. Uh, invariably there are those who don't hear it when I'm including it in the lesson and I still get asked about it. So let's go back and look at these things. Perhaps the most common argument that I hear when I start teaching about the necessity of water baptism is the argument that the thief on the cross was not baptized. So let's go to Luke chapter 23 and let's, uh, let's begin with verse 38 and we'll read down through verse 43. Luke 23 verses 38 through 43. A superscription also was written above him, over him in letters of Greek and Latin and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. And one of the malefactors which were hanged railed on him, saying, If 
thou be Christ, save thyself and us. But the other answered, rebuked him, saying, Dost thou not fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? And we, we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man hath done nothing amiss. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou come, comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Now, the argument is, that here's a man who's a thief. He is hanging on the cross. He simply says to Jesus, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And that's all it took for him to be saved. Um, <clears throat> so many problems with that argument. And, and so many things that, that I could take the time to address. First of all, Jesus said, except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Now, I want to ask you, where is the repentance in saying, remember me when you come into your kingdom? Just, uh, just a few days ago, I heard a preacher say, it only takes four words for you to be saved. If you'll say these four words, whether in your mind or out loud, then you're saved. And he said, the four words are this, Jesus is my Lord. And if you say that in your mind or you say it with your mouth, you're saved. Now, I got a problem with that. In fact, the Bible's got a problem with that. Jesus said, except you repent, you're going to perish. Now, where's the repentance in saying Jesus is my Lord? In fact, I'm going to tell you, I could probably find a half a dozen or so drunks on a Friday night and shake them while they're lying in the gutter in the midst of their own vomit and say, would you repeat these words after me? Jesus is my Lord. And get them to say it. Does that mean they're saved? Well, of course not. Simply speaking words with your mouth is not what saves you. Jesus said, unless you repent, saying that he's your Lord doesn't make him your Lord. Jesus said, if I am your Lord, then you should do the things that I tell you to do. Now, second thing about this thief on the cross, is first of all, well, the second thing is this, that you don't know whether he's ever been baptized or not. You don't know. He didn't get baptized after he said this to Jesus. But you don't know what brought him to this moment. You don't know the history of his life. Can I tell you, I'm not proud of the fact, but there have been a few people I've baptized that later turned out to not be genuine. And there are some people I've baptized that later turned around and really messed up even though they were genuine when they started. But they later messed up. Hello? You ever heard the term backslider? I'm telling you, we don't know what might have happened in the life of this thief. 
We don't know if John the Baptist baptized him or not. He may have been a backslider. Hello? But the biggest problem with all that is this. When did the church begin? On the day of Pentecost. Prior to Pentecost, there was no church. In fact, this is not in the notes, but, but Josh, get for me John 7 and 39. Now, I, I think surely anybody would agree that you have to be born of the Spirit. I, I, they might argue with me what that means. But I'm telling you, even those who say all you got to do is believe on the Lord will tell you that when you believe on the Lord, you're born of the Spirit. Are you following me? That's their definition of it. The problem is prior to the church, nobody was born of the Spirit. What does John 7, 39 say? But this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believed on him should receive, for the Holy Ghost was not yet glorified. The, the, the Holy Ghost was not yet given. Because Jesus was not yet glorified. Because Jesus was not yet glorified. The Bible's very clear that until the time when Jesus died, was buried, rose again, and ascended into heaven, nobody received the Holy Ghost. So what happened to the thief on the cross that day cannot compare to how we get saved today. He was not a part of the church. Would everybody agree with me that Moses was most likely saved? Would you agree with that statement? I, I believe Moses was saved. Anybody else believe Moses was saved? There's three or four of you that do. I don't know what the rest of you think happened to him, but I believe he got saved. I, I, believe, I believe that Moses was saved. But Moses was saved through keeping the law. Now, can I point to Moses and say, well, Moses didn't get baptized. Moses didn't, Moses didn't do anything. No, and Moses didn't say Jesus is my Lord either. Right? right? And yet I believe he was saved. But I can't compare my salvation to the salvation of Moses because I'm not under Moses' law. I'm living in the age of the church. And when you're in the age of the church, you got to be saved through the church. And salvation in the church does not require the keeping of Moses' law. Are you following me? The thief died before Jesus was glorified. Right. He died before the church was born. So however the thief was saved is not a picture of how we get saved today. You can't compare the two anymore that you can compare your salvation with Moses' salvation. Well, hallelujah. I believe Enoch was saved. Man. He walked with God and was not, for God took him. He was translated, the Bible says. God just took him straight to heaven. Do 
not pass go, do not collect $200, right? I mean, God just took him right straight into glory. And yet he didn't keep the law. He didn't proclaim Jesus as his Lord. He wasn't baptized. But he went to heaven. But I can't be saved the way Enoch was saved. Because I'm living in the church age. And if I want to be saved in the church age, I got to do it the way it's taught in the church age. And in the church age, there's only one faith. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Right? Right? In the church age, there's only one way to be saved. And that is you got to repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus and receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. So don't go comparing your salvation to the salvation of anybody who lived prior to the church. Hallelujah. All right. I want to compare my salvation to the salvation of those who were saved after the church was born. After the church is born, then the next question that I get asked about is the Philippian jailer. All right, let's talk about the Philippian jailer for just a few minutes here. Let's go to Acts chapter 16, verse 31. Here's what Paul said. In fact, could you back up to verse 30, I think is where we, uh, this would help us to understand this a little bit better. Um, In Acts chapter 16, and yeah, let's, let's start with verse 30. We should do verses 30 and 31. So read for me. And brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved in thy house. So here, after the birth of the church, we find this jailer asking Paul and Silas, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved and thy house. And so the argument is, this man was only told to believe. He was not told to be baptized. He was told that if you believe, you're saved. Now, I want you to look very, very closely at that verse on the wall. And I want you to answer this question to yourself. Did Paul really say, the moment you believe, you are saved? Is that what he said? That's not what he said. He said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou what? Thou shalt. That's future tense. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved and thy house. Now, please follow with me. If what this verse means is that the moment you believe you are saved, then I submit to you that the moment the jailer believed his entire family was saved, whether they believed or not. Because that's what Paul said. If we're going to take this, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved, as meaning the moment you believe you're saved, then that also included his family. They got saved whether they believed or not. 
And nobody believes that. But if we'll look at this the way it's actually stated, there is a word here that is in the future tense. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt. Here's what he said. He said, we got to have a starting point. Now, does anybody remember this story? Paul and Silas are in jail. Why are they in jail? Does anybody know? Well, they preached Jesus, but they did something specific. They had, let's, let's back up and, 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 and give you the whole scenario. You'll remember this once I tell you, but you've got to get it all connected here. But there was a vision that appeared to Paul, somebody from Macedonia, Philippi, saying, come over unto us and help us. So Paul and Silas went over there. This is the first time that anybody's gone into this place to preach Jesus. They get there, and they're being followed by a woman possessed of the devil. And she's saying, these are men of the most high God. Hear ye them. They show us the way of salvation. Hear ye them. And nothing wrong with what she's saying, but everything wrong with the spirit she's got. Oh, I could, I'm probably not going to finish these questions and answers today, so I might as well just do what I feel. Um, look, church, let me tell you something. Sometimes we've got to look beyond the superficial. This is where the gifts of the spirit are so crucial. Because this woman followed them and what she was saying was right. And what put Paul and Silas in prison was because they cast the devil out of this girl. And she was a source of monetary gain for the men of the city. And when he cast the devil out of her, she's not going to bring them any money anymore. And so they're mad. Now, please understand, the only way that Paul could know this girl was wrong was by discerning her spirit. It wasn't based on anything she said. She's saying all the right things. Are you hearing me this morning? I'm trying to instill some things. Even though we're teaching on baptism, I'm still trying to just put some truths in you that you need to understand. Because I've seen people say, well, you know, so-and-so, they're a good person. I've never heard them say anything bad. But you may not know their spirit. And just because they're not saying what's wrong doesn't mean they're not wrong. But Paul, Paul recognized the spirit that was driving this woman. Are you hearing me? And he cast the spirit out. And that's why they ended up in prison. So they are in a brand new place where the gospel's never been preached. And Paul, this man asked Paul, tell me how to be saved. Now, look, do you think for a minute that this Philippian understands salvation, heaven and hell, the church, the world, do you think that this jailer understands any of that when nobody's been there to preach the gospel? 
When he says, tell me how to be saved, he's looking at a jail that is crumbling around him. Prisoners that are being set free. And his job and life are on the line. Right, right. And he says, tell me how to get out of this. And Paul said, well, I want to tell you something. If you'll believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, there's going to be a change that happens not only to you, but it's going to come to your whole family. Paul is not saying at the moment you believe, you are eternally saved. What he's saying is, we got to have a starting point here. The first thing you're going to have to do is believe that Jesus Christ really is the Messiah. And if you'll believe that, then we've got some common ground. Right? I mean, it's like going, look, church, we don't deal with this much. But you've got to understand this. It's like if you were to start trying to witness to a Hindu. Where are you going to start? Well, the Bible says, okay, they don't believe the Bible. So now what? Hello? Where do you start? How do you convince them? How do you reach them? You can't start quoting scripture. They don't believe scripture. So there's got to be somewhere that you can find that will be a common ground, a starting point. And look, they're going to have to come to this. You're going to have to believe that Jesus came to this world to save. And if you can't believe that, we can't go any farther. Right? That's where it's got to start. And that's what he's saying to the man of Macedonia, Philippi. He is telling this man, we got to start somewhere. And the place to start is the fact that Jesus came here to save. And if you'll believe that, then by the time we get done, you and your whole family is going to be saved. Now, I'm telling you that Paul did not tell them. All you have to do is believe and that's it. In fact, here's the big problem. They only want to read through verse 31 and stop right there. But that's not the end of the story. Let's keep reading. Start reading with verse 32. And they spake unto him. The Wait a minute. Lord. And they did what? Spake. They spake unto him the what? The word of the Lord. And to all that were in his I'm telling you, Paul didn't just say believe and you're saved and that's it. Because if that was it, there's no reason to go any further. He's saved. Are you hearing me? If that's all that he meant, you just believe and you're saved, then it's done. It's already settled. Let's go home. We'll see you later. We've just started a church. But he didn't. He used that as his beginning point, as the platform from which he would launch this dissertation. And then he spake unto this man the word of the Lord. And he preached it not only to the jailer, but he preached it to all of his house. And what's next? Verse 33. And he took them. And that jailer took them the same hour of the night. And washed their stripes. Washed their stripes. And was baptized. And was what? Baptized. And was what? Baptized. Don't tell me that the only thing Paul said was, but 
believe and you're saved. No, no. Paul said, let's start here. And when they started there, Paul began to preach. And somewhere along the way, Paul preached baptism. And he preached it so hard and he preached it so straight that the jailer said, I'm not waiting until the sun comes up. You take me right now. We're going to find water right now. We're going to get baptized right now. Right. You understand that for this jailer to take these prisoners and wash their stripes and get baptized, he was putting his own neck on the chopping block. He could have been put to, he wouldn't have just lost his job. They didn't have a union in Macedonia Philippi. He wouldn't have just lost his job. He'd have lost his life. He was risking everything. I'm telling you, Paul preached baptism so strong that the man said, I'm not waiting. We're going now. Our whole family is going now. Every one of us are going to get baptized right now. Well, praise God. Amen. Hallelujah. Amen. So don't tell me that that's all Paul said. It's not all he said. Look, when, when we talked about the laws of Bible interpretation, I mentioned to you the law of first mention. Anybody remember that? Anybody remember me talking about the law of first mention? I stated to you that in first mention, we are often given details that may not be given in subsequent mentions. You understand? One person understands. Let me see if I can say it again. Um, the first time that the Bible talks about something, it gives us lots of details. But when it talks about the same thing later, it may not list all of those details, but it doesn't change the facts just because the details aren't given. All right. It's like saying, you know, I had a, I had a, uh, um, I had a, a bacon and lettuce and cheese uh, double decker sandwich and and it had it had ketchup and and mayonnaise and mustard and, and three slices of bread is anybody getting hungry yet and, and 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 I go through and list all the ingredients on this double decker sandwich and then I come back later and said, oh, and by the way, it was so good, I had another one. In saying another one, that doesn't mean that I left all those ingredients out. You understand it because of the first mention. The subsequent reference includes everything said in first mention. So I'm telling you, first mention of the plan of salvation in the church age is Acts 2.38. That says, repent, be baptized in Jesus' name, receive the Holy Ghost. That's first mention. Anything after that, when it refers back to people being saved, it may not list every ingredient. But it doesn't mean those ingredients were not present. You're expected to just accept what was said in the first mention and know that carries all the way through.
The example we gave to you from Scripture was the days of creation, that God created certain things on certain days. There's nowhere else in the Bible where it talks about the specific days and what was created on each individual day, except in Genesis chapter 1. But when the Bible later talks about creation, just because it doesn't say that on day one he separated light from darkness, that doesn't change the fact of that detail. If it says he created the world, we know the details because of Genesis 1. Right? So in Acts chapter 2, the details are repent, be baptized in Jesus' name, receive the Holy Ghost. Now, I don't care where you go from there. Any other reference to people being saved after that point may not include all of those details. But they were there. For instance, this just says he was baptized. Doesn't say how. But we've got enough proof throughout the scripture of how Paul did it. And how the other apostles did it, that we know he didn't do it saying Father, Son, Holy Ghost. We know he did it in Jesus' name. The detail is not given, but the details, just because they're not listed, doesn't mean they're contradicted. And just because it doesn't say he received the Holy Ghost and spoke in tongues, doesn't mean that that's not what happened. I, I, I just, some reason I feel like I'm not quite getting this across the way I want to. So let me try one more example before we move on into the next question. Let's go over to Acts chapter 8. Hallelujah. Praise God. In Acts chapter 8. Um, and this is not in the notes, Brother Josh, but just, just help me out if you would. Um, let's, let's start with verse 15, Acts chapter 8, verse 15, and, and let's look at this. Acts 8, verse 15, start reading for me. But when they were come down, prayed for them, that they might receive the Holy Ghost. Uh-huh. For as yet was fallen upon none of them, only they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Okay, so we know they were baptized in Jesus' name. That's specifically mentioned here. All right, read on. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Ghost. Oh, well, they received the Holy Ghost, but the Bible doesn't say they spoke in tongues. So there are people who will say, because it doesn't say it here, it didn't happen. I submit to you, first mention tells us what happens when somebody receives the Holy Ghost. Amen. They speak in tongues. Right. Now, the Bible doesn't specifically say they spoke in tongues, but let's see what it does say. Verse number 18 says this. Saying, give me no, 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 you skipped one. Verse 18. When Simon saw that. And when Simon. That they'll lay wait a minute. When Simon. Saw. When Simon saw. That through the laying on of the apostles' hands, the Holy Ghost. Now look, if receiving the Holy Ghost is just something that happens inside your heart without any kind of outward evidence, how did Simon see it happen? How did Simon know? These people already believed. They already had great joy. There already were miracles. 
right? I mean, we can go back and read those verses. Maybe we should. Maybe, maybe I should have started earlier than that. Uh, uh, let's, let's go back up then and, and see. Um, just start reading with verse 9. Let's, and I know it's difficult. You've got to read and change verses on the screen and all that. But let's, let's, let's do what we can. Let's start with verse 9. And, and uh, I tell you what, if you'll keep up, I'll read. All right? So you just keep up with me here. There was a certain man called Simon, which before time the city, uh, in the same city, used sorcery, bewitched the people of Samaria, giving out that himself was some great one. Verse 10. To whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the great power of God. Verse 11. And to him they had regard because that of long time he had bewitched them with sorceries. Verse 12. When they believed Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Verse 13. Then Simon himself believed also when he was baptized. He continued with Philip and wondered, beholding the miracles and signs which were done. Verse 14. Now, when the apostles were in Jerusalem, heard that Samaria received the word of God, they sent unto them Peter and John, verse 15, who when they were come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Ghost. Verse 16, for as yet he was fallen on none of them, only they baptized in the name of the Lord. Now, look, I'm just showing you, there was already miracles. There were already signs and wonders. There was already great things taking place. In fact, I should have started with, uh, I didn't start enough. Let's back up a little bit. Let's go back to verse 6. Um, verse 6, Acts chapter 18, verse 6. The people with one accord gave heed to those things which Philip spake, hearing, seeing the miracles which he did. Verse 7. Unclean spirits, crying with a loud voice, came out of many that were possessed with them. Many that uh, taken with palsies were lame, were healed. Verse 8, there was great joy in that city. I just want you to see, demons are being cast out. Miracles are being performed. The people have got joy. They all believe. Amen. So what sign is there for Simon to see something's different now? They just received the Holy Ghost. It wasn't because miracles happened. One, because all of a sudden they had joy. Are you hearing me? Something else had to happen for Simon to see and know that these people just received something they had not received heretofore. Right. How do we know what he saw? We go back to first mention. The first mention of people receiving the Holy Ghost says they spoke with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So what did Simon see that day that let him know they've now received something they'd never received before? I'll tell you what it was. They started talking in tongues. And when Simon saw that, he knew they'd received the Holy Ghost. Well, praise God. Hallelujah. I'm telling you, church, this law of first mention, you can't rule that out. When you get to Acts chapter 16 and the Philippian jailer, you can't just throw that away and say, okay, nothing else happened. He just believed. That's it. He was saved. No. To do so is to not interpret the Bible properly. But if you're going to interpret it properly, you're going to go back and look again at the first mention. And you're going to find out what the details were. And you're going to apply those same details to every instance thereafter. Amen. Let's stand. I'm going to stop right here before I get into another situation. Amen. Let's lift our hands to the Lord. Come on.
oh, let's love God. Let's thank him. I love you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. Hallelujah, hallelujah. I love you, Savior. I love you, Savior. Come on, let's thank him for truth today. Let's thank him for truth today. Hallelujah. Oh, everybody, let's love the Lord. I love you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. Come on, let's reach out to the Lord. Let's thank God for truth today. I'm so 